Thank you. Thank you very much for the warm welcoming here today. Thank you for the beautiful setting for us to hang out in this weekend. My family has appreciated that so much. And I had a really great time this morning in Sunday school with the folks that uh, we had an opportunity to speak and share and talk over the Word, and it was a really great time. So, uh, as Mike mentioned, I have four kids, graduated last December from Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest. I'm actually originally from Richmond, and I may have, we've told a few of you, my, my in-laws currently live in Wake Forest and have lived in Wake, uh, not Wake Forest, Weir's Cave, it's another W name, uh, in Weir's Cave, Virginia. And uh, I went to school in Lexington, my wife went to school in Roanoke, and so we stomped up and down 81 and throughout the mountains in Shenandoah Valley for quite a period of our time uh, before we were married and lived in Richmond and moved down to Wake Forest. So it's good to be back here. Uh, my wife said this is a great place to live when you look outside and see the mountains, that's what she's used to. Um, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2, that's where we're going to be this morning. In uh, chapter 2, and it's going to be the first 10 verses. The faithful Christian life isn't easy, is it? I've attempted to walk faithfully long enough to know that's true. And I'm sure there are plenty in here who have lived the Christian life or tried to walk the Christian life faithfully longer than I have. And I, and I would venture to say, I would bet that you would agree with me that there are day in and day out challenges. To remain faithful to Jesus Christ is a battle daily. And we know that's evident in so many ways because we see faithful people often put up on pedestals fail so often. Unfortunately, fail. And we see them tumble and we see them fall, but we know it's because each one of us are faced with temptations. Each one of us are faced with the daily struggles of being, remaining faithful to Christ and walking in a way that honors his name. Maybe, maybe you started your life of faith with a different expectation. Maybe when you came to Christ, you thought that salvation and getting rid of your sin meant that you were going to live a life under God's blessing every day. And I'm sorry to, if you're at this point that you've walked for any amount of time uh, in, in faith with God. If you've tried to follow after Jesus, you know that's not true. Expectations don't exactly meet that. The reality do not meet those expectations, do they? There's a lot of places in our life that we have that same kind of disparate reality versus what we thought was going to happen. This happened to us yesterday on our walk, okay? My family and I got down here, and we decided to take a hike. We decided to go and, and see the beauty of nature and to walk with our family down one of these trails. My wife, Heather, selected an easy hike of 0.6 miles one way, then you know, back, so it was 1.2. But it, it was a long careening. There was creeks. There was waterfalls. She had, she had these images in her head, grand visions of joyful children playing in the streams, waterfalls, playing and swimming underneath the waterfalls, Social media, perfect family photos, right? Everyone's going to see. Those are the ones we post anyway, right? But the reality was a little bit different. It was slightly different. The reality looked different because wet, cold, fearful, hurting, hungry, crying, disappointed children made for quite a different experience. And yet they got up again this morning and said, can we go on that other hike? You guys are playing. We're a glutton for punishment. But the truth is, we do set plans, we do set expectations, and often they look differently. And sometimes in the Christian life, we might anticipate something going a certain way, but the reality is that we often face trials, we often face temptation, and we fall, face those struggles. 
The reality of the Christian life is actually a spiritual war. That's why Paul the Apostle regularly speaks of persevering to the end when he talks about believers. He talks about perseverance. You don't generally talk about perseverance when it's God's blessing poured out every day. Am I right? Boy, if I could just persevere through all this blessing. That's not what we normally say. That would, we wouldn't tell anybody that. We wouldn't express that opinion. And Paul understands that he knows we need fuel. We need encouragement to walk faithfully after Jesus. And today we're going to look at a passage in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, where Paul is giving us that very fuel we need. Ephesians is written to the church at Ephesus. I don't know if you know some of the background of this, but it's the church at Ephesus. And the church at Ephesus is one um, where the worship of false idols and false gods was simply rampant. Caesar was exalted, and the temple of the Greek god Artemis was standing over the city, looming as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so it's quite likely that the Ephesian Christians probably felt like power and authority was given to every god and leader but their king Jesus. It is evident throughout this letter that Paul is combating this notion, elevating the power and authority of Christ, and Christ and his authority over, and I'm quoting for chapter 1, every name that is named. Because he wants the Ephesus church to understand that they need not fear what's going on around them because their king is the exalted king overall. So we see in the letter that Paul wants to provide the fuel for a life lived out for Christ. This entire letter is packed full of truth and focusing on who we are now in Christ and how we live in light of that new identity. It's a very short letter. If you sat down, you could actually read it in 20 minutes, but it's rich. To paraphrase Klein Snodgrass, he put it this way, pound for pound, Ephesians may well be the most influential document in history the most influential document in history. So today we're going to spend time in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, where Paul delivers the crux of his message in simply 10 verses. It's just two sentences in the original language, and Paul doesn't hold back. Read with me in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The big idea of this passage is the same of the rest of the letter. Paul wants the Ephesians to know the hope, inheritance, and power of the gospel that fuels a radical Christian life. Ladies and gentlemen, today I want you to know the hope, the inheritance, and the power of the gospel that fuels a radical Christian life. 
We need the gospel to dwell in us deeply in order for us to live fully for Christ. Will you pray with me? Well, I'm, before we start, a church member once asked Martin Luther, why do you preach the gospel to us week after week? Luther replied, because week after week you forget it. We need that. So let's pray together that God might in here with us as we look deeply in his word, open our eyes to see the truth. God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give us, give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we might know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. So Paul in here is under no delusion about what the Christian life's like. He knows we need encouragement. He knows we need to understand deeply who we are and what Christ has done for us. And in this passage, Paul wants to turn upside down three ideas, three misunderstandings about our life before Christ, in Christ, and after Christ. He wants to challenge and, and make clear that your condition without Christ is far worse than you think. He wants to make clear that God's grace is far greater than you can imagine. Your condition without Christ is far worse than you think, but God's grace is far greater than you can imagine. And he, thirdly, he wants to make clear that work done for Christ is more fulfilling and joyful than any work that you might ever plan for yourself. So let's dig into the text. Let's look at the first portion of the verses in verses 1 through 3 where Paul's talking about our once hopeless condition. And you were dead in the trespasses of sins. He goes right for it. What were you? There's, no, there's, there's not an accident that Paul used the term dead, by the way. Okay, Paul is, he's tra he has a transcriptionist. He's speaking the words. He describes our condition before God as dead. I, I actually pictured this a little bit in my head. He's standing around. He's talking to Luke, who's writing for him, and he's saying, all right, we need to tell him it's really bad. Tell him, you were lost. No, that's not it. That doesn't get it. Uh, you, um, you, you weren't going to, you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses. He starts with that. Dead in trespasses. Your sin has you in a place where you lifeless spiritually. You're lifeless spiritually. The, the actual term there may, uh, dead, I mean, there's no gray area, is there? There's no, there's no, like the popular book, there's no 50 shades of gray, right? 50 shades of dead. There's no 50 shades of dead. There is death and there's life. And Paul said, you're dead spiritually. Your transgressions have blinded you. Your transgressions keep you spiritually in a place where you cannot follow after what God has for you. And actually, this term, it can get muddled, right? The original language from Greek can sometimes get muddled. What is Paul really saying? I looked it up. This term nekros is the Greek, okay? It's used 130 times in the scripture. It's actually used multiple times outside of the text. And every time, this is, the, this is what they are trying to get across. The sense of the word is dead no longer living, lifeless, completely broken, inoperable. And if it, does, if it misses on you what he's trying to say spiritually where you are, we use today a term in the medical field that, to just, uh, that actually branches off of this word necros. It's called necrosis. Have you ever heard of it? Necrotic tissue. It's when cells are completely 
dead, and they no longer multiply, they no longer heal. And a matter of fact, if you don't get them out of the wound, you're not going to heal right. That is dead spiritually. That is where we are before God and without Christ. And Paul wants to make clear we are dead, and behaviors flow out of that. What are the behaviors that he describes? After verse, starting in verse 1, he says, Once you walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We followed the course of the world. We did whatever the whims of the world wanted to do. Often we see it throughout text. It says that they, they did what was right in their own eyes. They followed the prince of the power of the air. Remember, he's challenging the authority of what is around the Ephesus church. And he uses the term prince of the power of the air. He's referring to the enemy, Satan, and all of his effects. He's referring to the prince of the control and the power of what's surrounding you. Think about air. Why is he talking about air? Where is air? Is there anywhere that you can think of other than a vacuum, if you're like a really science geek, that you're not going to be around air? It penetrates everywhere. Air is with you when you're with your family. Air is with you when you're having a disagreement with your spouse. Air is with you when parenting doesn't quite seem to be working correctly. Air is with you when you go to work with your employer. Air is worth with you when you go to school and classes and decide whether or not you're going to cheat or you're going to honor God in your work and your effort. Air is with you when you sit by yourself in front of the computer and decide where to click the mouse. Paul is trying to make clear that Satan's effects and Satan's work is everywhere in this world. And before God... Before Christ, we were simply dead and following after his desire for our life. That's the condition that we find ourselves. Where else, what else does he go to? He, call, he calls them sons of disobedience. Disobedience is in your blood. We had a conversation in Sunday school this morning about why it's so hard sometimes to, be, to follow after what God has for you. It's because it's by nature runs in you and though God saves you we're not yet glorified we are not yet apart from this body and this world and so that sons of disobedience the flesh still pulls still tugs I'm not the only one am I we're not the only one where the flesh just wants to pull you away from where God might have you be well before Christ there was no hope for that guess what you gave in to what the flesh desired you disobeyed you dishonored you dis. You didn't love God, didn't care what he had to say. Obedience wasn't even a thing you considered. And in this text, Paul clearly says you were not only dead in your sin, you're following after what God, what Satan has and desires for your life. You are a son of disobedient. You are living in the passions of your flesh. You're just doing what feels right. You're carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. If you want it, you do it. I mean, you don't have to go very far. You probably go to the top 10 or top 100 billboard songs. I bet there's a lot of them that have that theme. Do it the way I want to. Whatever desire I take, it's mine, it's me. Those are all, those are all evidences of the disobedience that runs through our veins without Christ and is, permeates this world. And then it goes on a little bit further, and Paul says this. Not only are you a son of disobedience, not only are you dead in your sins and lifeless without Christ, 
but you are by nature children of wrath. You're carrying out the desires of your body, and by nature you're children of wrath. And this is a hard, hard, hard concept. Don't, don't deny that. I, I believe that if you ever have a conversation outside of these walls with a non-believer, the issue of wrath can cause some controversy. Because how can you say God loves me and yet he has wrath for me? How can we say that? Can you say, I can wrestle with that. Hey, it's hard to sit down and think about that. And often we don't consider that. We just, oh, yeah, that's good, wrath, God, he hates sin. It's not just that. He said you are the object. You are a child of wrath. Can we let that sink in? Before Christ, God's wrath is on you. The very wrath that put Jesus on the cross is laid on your head. And brothers and sisters in here today, that was you before Christ. That's all the people you know who are outside of Christ. They're still there. And let me tell you, the reason that God's wrath falls on them, it's a frightful position to be on, be in. And it's not because he's an evil God. Let me help you understand. It's because he is a very good God that he hath wrath, has wrath for sin. It's because he has a deep and abiding love for this world that he's created and a love for us, the crown jewel of his creation, the one that he created in his image. It's out of his love that he has wrath. And let me, let me clear that up a little bit more. He loves us so much that it infuriates him to see us harm one another. That's what I mean. He can't love sin and love us at the same time. I cannot love my children and love or not have wrath against things that harm them. Is that wrong? Is that not right? Do you, do you see the connection there? God's wrath is because of his love. And it's a hard conversation to have. It's a hard conversation to have, like, for example, why we would fear God. The very justified wrath is the reason for our fear. I'll give you an example. Listen, we had a conversation this morning, and, and, and <laughs> there were some questions thrown at me. Probably I have a seminary background. Let me kind of, kind of clear the air for everybody in here. If you haven't been trained, you formally in any way, I, I have a degree. That means I sat down in a classroom, and Southeastern said I was good enough, okay? I didn't, I didn't like, set off any bells. I didn't walk across the streets, magna summa cum laude, all this kind of mess. But I did spend time thinking about some theological things, okay? My kids still stump me when they ask questions about God, okay? I can be like, well, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, my professor didn't talk about that. Or how did they put it? I don't... Um. So I'll give you a perfect example, and it has to do with this kind of a concept. We were having a conversation about the Ten Commandments, and we talked about God's name being handled, being dealt with fear and reverence for God's name, okay? So one of my children said, that, why would we fear God's name? Why would we have fear for that? Now, I, 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 I proceeded to stumble and fumble along. Well I, well, I mean, it's not that. It's kind of a different, it's similar. There's a fear. Let me take you the dictionary. We'll look at what the Greek says. No, I, I was trying to work through it and get to a point, but I'll tell you the perfect example, and actually it helps me think about it a lot better and more clearly today. Are you ready for this? This is, 
This is not profound, okay? It's just how it finally worked out. I finally came to the point, I said, why? I said, I said, honey, you fear God's name, and I'm telling you, I don't, it's not much different. It's not because he's evil. It's not because he's cruel, but it is right that you would fear and reverence his name and hold it up. And I'll give you an example. I said, guys, kids, what's the worst name you could think of calling somebody? Okay. One of them said nitwit. That's how sweet and innocent my kids are. I love it. Okay. One of them said nitwit. One of them said uh, stupid, I think. Or idiot. One of them said idiot. One of them said stupid. One said nitwit. I said, boom, we got this. Okay. Why do you fear and reverence God's name? Do you love your mommy? Yes, I love my mommy. Does your mommy love you? Absolutely, she loves you. Does she care for people? Yes. Is she sweet and kind and giving? Yes, she is. Would she do anything for you? Yeah. Would you ever walk down the hallway in the morning and say, hey, you stupid idiot, nitwit, what's for breakfast? No way. Are you kidding me? Why not? I'd be afraid. <laughs> you see that? Because she's loving, she's kind, she's good, but mommy is not nearly. My mommy's good. Mommy's great. Mommy's still not God, though. And so we see the need for fear and reverence of God, and guess what? Outside of Christ, we have none of it. We don't. We don't love him. We don't serve him. Apart from Christ, our desires for the flesh, for the world, for what we want to pursue. Apart from Christ, we are children for wrath, of wrath. He loves the world. He hates our sin that perpetrates it. He loves us, and he hates the sin we perpetrate against one another. And I'll go even further to show you why God's wrath is true and just. It was so timely to hear these conversations this morning because it was right on cue with the notes I have today. How many in here watch the news? I'm sure you do see some. How many of here have to turn off the news occasionally because of the headlines and the amount of evil you see in the world? Too much to bear, isn't it? Makes you angry, discourages you, troubles you. You don't want to see reports constantly of someone getting harmed, a child being abused. Okay. God doesn't turn that off. He sees every bit of evil that we catch in the news, and he sees all the rest of it that never makes it to the TV screen. And every small country or tribe where a child is abused or harmed, where men and women murder or kill or destroy one another. He sees it all. And I think, I know, that justifies anger towards sin. So we stand rightly as children of God's wrath before Christ. And you have to understand, you have to understand the desperate condition you came from. You have to understand that you came from that condition because it puts in perspective what God's done for you. And that's why Paul starts there. This is where you were. Look at the verse one. And you were. He's talking to a group of believers. And he knows you got to understand where you came from because guess what that does? That magnifies what God has now done starting in verse four. And brothers and sisters, you have got to understand and hear 
that those people who are lost around you in the world, that's where they still stand before God. If you have a conversation at a supermarket with someone you know that's lost, that's where they stand before God. And you know where that drives you to? I hope. I hope that drives you to. Not anger because they didn't quite honor God the right way, but compassion. Because without God, they've got no hope. Friends, if you're here today and you don't have Christ, you don't have hope before God. Because in our very nature, we're his enemy. And the, we look in verse 4 and we see, if we stand without hope, I don't want you, hear me now, you might feel a sense of hopelessness. That's where Paul wanted to have you, but it's because he wanted to reveal the hope in verse 4. Read at the beginning of verse 4. What does he say? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. Verses 1 through 7, one sentence. You know what the subject of that sentence is? God. Guess who made you alive? God. That entire passage, Paul is saying, you were this, you were sons of disobedience, you were children of wrath, you were dead, but even while you were there, because of God's rich mercy, because of his love with which he loved us, because of who he is and his character and his love and his grace, he made you alive in Christ. He made you alive in Christ. He didn't stop there. He made you alive in Christ, together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and, verse 6, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus. This is intentional, by the way. He actually is par- he's paralleling something in this passage that he does in v- chapter 1. In chapter 1, he talks about his great might. If you can look back at verse 20, he said he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places. He's talking about God's, Christ's authority. He raised Christ. He seated him. He gave him authority over all things. But he doesn't stop there because he says you were dead. You were lost. You were without hope. And guess what he did with you? He took his enemy and he raised you with Christ. And he seated you with Christ. Do you see that? Do you see the contrast between our hopeless condition and God's merciful intervention? He meets us there while we're dead and brings life. He made us alive together with Christ. Dead, sinner by nature, made alive. Follower of the enemy, seated you with his son. Why? Why? Why did he do that? Why did he bother? Have you thought about that? Have you ever looked at your salvation and said, why? Often the questions are asked, why doesn't God save everybody? I think rather the question is, why does God save anybody? Why does he have to do that? I mean, he essentially, with Noah, started over with one family, but why did he have to keep Noah? Why does he do that? Paul gives us an inkling into that in verse 7. He doesn't leave us hanging with a question. Verse 7 starts with a so. If you're reading your Bible and you're studying day after day, I love so's. You know why? Because I'm like the disciples listening to Jesus tell parables, and I'm like, what does that mean? Why did you do that? What is that? What are you trying to say? 
And I think the so's start to bring a little bit of context. Why did Jesus save us? Why did he show us any grace? Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's why. I, I hate to sound like I'm oversimplifying it, but salvation is simple and profound. The great God of the universe looked on us in our dead state, and in glorifying him and who he is in his character, he made us alive. And, and let, let, can we allow that to be an encouragement for each of you in here? Because I think that we can often be discouraged. If you're like me, and you walk day to day in the daily, in the daily life and challenges of Christian life, trying to be faithful, and you're opposed at all turns, you might be discouraged and think, I don't know how God can simply put up with me anymore. I mean, let's... Can we, is this a safe space? Can we? I've, I mess up on the same exact things over and over again. Like, like that irritates me when my kids do that. Like, I don't have the patience of God because if they do I told you that just five minutes ago. Why are you doing it again? That's me. That's me before the God creator, the, the creator of the universe who looks at me, has seen me, made me alive, and I'm just, I'm, I'm sorry, God, I, just, I talked to RC with my wife again. I'm sorry, I, I, you know what? I'm being a terrible steward of our finances. God, I, that attitude I just had with someone who was trying to serve me, that was, but I do it again. Sometimes I feel like I'm in a car and people cut me off. Like that's a safe space to be like mad and angry. Now sin still, that sin still, sin still applies there, but that's probably where it, get, it amplifies for me. Come on, are you serious? Nobody drives as good as I do. But that's a sad reality. And let me encourage you. You know what? In your heart, your sin might be far deeper. I don't know where you are. I'm talking about some things that may seem, oh, that's trifling. You don't know what happened, what I did last night. You don't know the kind of darkness that's being done to me daily. I don't. God does. And, and there's no exception here. You might say, you don't know my wife. You don't know my husband. You don't know. I don't. But I do know this. God's faithful and showed himself faithful. And this verse says that his intention for all believers, all those in Christ, his intention is that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. Believe me, you may find yourself lost in repeating sinful patterns. You may, you may have health that's always avoiding you. You're never cured. You might have pain that never leaves you. You might have financial burdens that I can't imagine. But I will tell you this, look to Jesus. Your worldly pains and things, I can't promise they'll go away. But the riches of his grace is a wealth far above any we might attain here today. Look to Jesus. Because in his merciful intervention, 
He came down to dead men and made them alive. And there is no sin in your life outside the power of the cross. And there's no darkness in your heart that's beyond God's saving grace in Christ. By grace we are saved. Verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. God doesn't want you to earn anything. God said you can't earn anything. He, he actually, Paul, Paul wants to stress this point so much so that in the former passage there you read, he almost breaks and interrupts himself. In verse 5, he says, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. God made you alive. By grace you've been saved. And then he continues, and raised us up. You notice that? It's almost an interruption of thought. He, he so wants to get across that it's God's grace in your life that saves you. It's not of works. Why? Well, I've got to tell you, if it's something I work on, I've got two options. Either I'm going to get pretty prideful because I'm doing okay at it, which didn't look like it worked very well for the Sanhedrin, for the uh, Sadducees and the Pharisees, did it? There's pride in performance. Or you can be like the ones who are sinners and lost and desperate, the ones that Jesus hung out with, who are they're not prideful, they're desperate, or they're just hopeless because they said, I can never achieve this. Reality, the ones who said they can never achieve it, they're closer to right. Oh, they are right. That's why Jesus spent his time with them. You notice that? The ones who were lost and hopeless, yes, yes, you get verses one through three. Let me show you the rest. That's what he was doing. You get your state before me. You, get your, you understand how you're hopeless before God. Let, he said it this way too, to the, the Pharisees. The sick need the doctor, right? They know they're sick. And I've come with the cure. I've come with the cure. So no one can boast. No one can boast. We're actually commanded, don't boast in yourself. Boast in the Lord. And so we boast in him and what he's done in us. In us. So we understand at this point, we've gotten all the way to the ends of 7, 8, and 9, and we see that we have our hopeless condition before Christ, God's merciful intervention on our behalf to bring us to life, and now Paul leads out through verse 10 to talk about our new radical commission for good works. Now, trust me, it's not all packed into that verse. I'm actually reading out for the rest of the verse, the, the rest of the, uh, the letter, but the implications are here. And I'll tell you why. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, it might seem counterintuitive. Paul says, it's not works. Don't boast. It's not you. It's nothing you can do. You can't earn salvation. Oh, by the way, start doing good works. But it's not. Because it's about the position of the good works. It's about the fact that, that good works don't save you, but we do good works because God has saved us. Is that clear? Is that clear? Is it? Good works don't earn God's salvation in his favor. We do good works because he first loved us. He loved us first, and then we do those works. And that's what Paul's getting to. He's trying to set the ground for the rest of the chapter. He he wants us to understand the contrast between the deep darkness of our sin and the beauty of God's grace. 
And then he wants that to fuel us to a radical Christian life. And, and what's a radical Christian life look like, guys? I'm using vague terms, radical Christian obedience. What is that? Well, what does it look like to do good works? And it means enjoying and glorifying God in your everyday life. That's what Paul illustrates in the rest of the, of the Ephesians. I mean, before sin permeated our life, and it was the very air that we breathed, the prince of the power of the air, before sin was permeating everything in our life, but now in Christ, every aspect of our life should be used for God's glory. Your marriage might be a sin where sin was permeating and causing damage and harm before Christ. After Christ, your marriage is now meant to put God's glory on display. That's what he, Paul starts to tell us in chapter 4, 5, and 6. He starts to talk to us about being humble, being patient, and maintaining unity. He talks about speaking truth. Don't send your anger. Don't steal. Relationships. Don't tear down, but build up. Don't be bitter. Be kind. Be sexually pure. Avoid filthy language. Crude jokes. Do not be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. Love and serve your wife. Respect and love your husband. Obey your parents. Dramatic pause. Don't provoke your children. Work hard in your vocation. Don't oppress those who work for you. And all of that is summed up, actually, when he starts the section in verse 1 of chapter 4, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Living a radical Christian life is having God's glory as your daily priority. Living the radical Christian life is having God's glory as your daily priority. But I've got to tell you, friends, it's not easy. It's spiritual warfare. Are you familiar with chapter 6 of Ephesians? Because Paul knows it's spiritual warfare. Put on the full armor of God. Put on the full armor of God. Because all of those things, all the salvation, the hope, the faith, Everything that God has provided to you in Christ is what equips you for the Christian life. The Christian life takes perseverance, but God, full of mercy and love, gives us the hope, inheritance, and power to fuel a radical Christian life. Apart from Christ, the sin in us is great, but God's grace and mercy is greater. Let that dwell in, your, let that dwell in you deeply every day and equip you to follow and walk faithfully in the good works God has for you. See, friends, the wrath of God and the grace and love of God collide on the cross of Christ. Where God's wrath is poured out on His own Son, Jesus Christ, He became sin, who He Himself knew no sin, and He did that on our behalf to absorb the wrath of God we rightly deserve. So we now can stand righteous before God in Christ. That filthy old nature is washed away in Christ. Friends, do you know this God? The God that would make an enemy into his family? Do you know his immeasurable grace? The grace he poured out on us through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus? You can know him today. You don't have to walk out these doors in darkness and the oppression and slavery of sin. You can know Christ, you can know God's immeasurable grace. Brothers and sisters today, if you have known this grace, if you've walked as a faithful follower of Christ, do you worship and glorify Him every day in your life? 
Do you wake up every morning refreshed in His new mercies? You were once dead, but made alive in Christ. My prayer for you would be that Christ would dwell in you deeply, that you would know the love of Christ and filled with all the fullness of God. And as we close here today, I'd like to pray the Scriptures over us. I'd like to pray what Paul prayed out of Ephesians 3 for us. Would you pray with me? Father, according to the riches of your glory, grant us to be strengthened with the power through your Spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever.